The following audio is brought to you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. More information about our church can be found at emmanueltuscaloosa.org. If you look at the handout that is available there in front of you, um, we have been going through over the last few weeks uh, a tract, which I have seemed to misplace now. I don't have it up here in front of me, but we have been uh, presenting a tract that looks very much like what's on the screen behind me, uh, Two Ways to Live. And this is basically a, a very simple way of sharing the gospel, and we're encouraging you to take one, um, pray about who you might give this track to, um, pray that there would be an opportunity for somebody to present to somebody um, this track that you might give it to them. On the back, you can write your name on it. It's got information about our church. They can know uh, what our service times are. You can invite them to church. And that's all you had time for, is to just invite them to church. That would still be very good. Um, but being able to go through the tract with them, giving them something to walk away with that they could read on their own is, is also really good. Um, as we've been talking through this, one of the hopes really of this Wednesday night little kind of, uh, if you want to call it a breakaway session from what we're normally doing, is not only a good way for us to pause and just think about the gospel that we're presenting, what we're saying by some of the things that we say to people when we present the gospel to them, but it, you know, it's also an opportunity uh, for us to uh, share the truth of Christ with other people. And we're obviously recording this, and people will be able to uh, seek this out as they look on the back of the track that you might give them. There's the address for these recordings that they might be able to, to look through. And, and we've gone through each panel so that we might be able to better understand what's being said there. And last week, we, just as a matter of review, last week we looked at uh, God's salvation of mankind. Though He had the right... Uh, every right to punish us for sin, he chose instead to save us through Jesus Christ, his son. And obviously the Bible is written from cover to cover to explain to us not only that we deserve judgment, but that there is good news. And the good news is that judgment doesn't have to be ours that God has provided a way of salvation that can only be had in Christ alone. And so it's important that we realize, first, we're all in the same bucket of deserving judgment, and yet God has chosen in His wisdom, His mercy, and His grace to provide a way out of His judgment. Um, but, as we've already seen, if God is just, we had to think about, and this is why I really appreciate the way kind of the track is framed, is that God is presented as just and also providing a means of escape. Well, how can He be just if He has also provided a means of escape? So last week, we looked at just how those two things could be maintained at the same time. How could God just wipe away the sin of a bunch of people and still maintain His justice? And if He were just to simply forgive us and just wipe away our sin, then there's no way He could be uh, just um, because the sin that has been committed against Him must be paid for. So that means, uh, and I think the tract faithfully presents this, and, and this is up to us also to fill in the blanks um, for people that might ask the question, how is it that He could be just and also a justifier? And that has to be through the atoning work of Jesus Christ. That means certain things about Jesus. Jesus had 
in order for God to maintain His own justice, Jesus had to live a sinless life. So He had to be a perfect sacrifice for us. He had to be the one that that paid for our sin. He also had to be God. And this is particularly important for a number of reasons. One that we talked about last week was that in the Gospel, when Christ dies on the cross, He is both the offended party and the judge. So because He is both the offended party and the judge, He alone has the right to set the penalty and determine when that penalty has been satisfied. And that was in His atoning work. I mean, there was a basketball game last week, so you might have missed it. But I'm just... I just, te- I just <laughs> that was a shot at Richard, but <laughs> uh, you you don't you don't miss an opportunity to tease me. So, <laughs> um, so uh, but then uh, finally, Jesus had to also stand as head and representative of new creation, which is what we're going to spend a good deal of time on tonight, but. Jesus, as a, 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 a essentially represented for humanity a, a new way to live. Uh, we are all condemned under Adam, right? Adam sinned, therefore we are all guilty as his children. We have inherited from him a corrupt nature, and we're corrupt from the crib to cradle to the grave, as it were. Jesus then comes in fully endowed by the Spirit of God. Uh, as a completely new creation, and therefore is a representative of an entirely different order. That means for us to be saved, we must be born again into that new uh, order, as it were, that new creation. So he's a, he's a representative. So all three of those things had to be true. There's probably 15 other things that we could talk about, or 20 other things that we could have talked about, but I wanted to focus on some of those because those are... Um, Perhaps ways of answering questions for people that, that might be helpful to you. Um, and if not, then just point them to this that last week's you know, explanation. Hopefully that, that'll help uh, them understand it. So tonight, we're not now focusing on the death so much of Christ as much as the resurrection of Christ. And what that actually means, um, that he was raised from the dead. And this, I think, um, really everything in the atonement of Christ, his death... His, certainly, uh, his perfect life, things like that, are, are sometimes difficult for us to wrap our minds around for sure. But I think also, too, the resurrection of Christ can be, sometimes be a challenge for people as we think about it. Um, and so I want to go through some of these things that are really particularly important for us to consider. Um, following uh, Jesus' crucifixion, he was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Um, who was a member of the Sanhedrin, which is basically the Jewish Supreme Court. And three days later, he rose from the dead. Now, I put this up there because I I know you all know that, right? Um, One thing that we sometimes forget is how important the actual historical circumstances of Jesus' burial and his resurrection really are. These are people that actually lived. They have names. They grew up in homes. They grew up in places and locations. They were actual, real people. And when we, when we talk to people that may have challenges, I, I recognize that you, you might share the gospel with a number of people in Alabama, especially in the South, who grew up in church or around church, or, or, or maybe you're inviting somebody to church. They've been out of church for some time, but they get it, right? They, 
they're not really pushing back too much on Jesus. You know, kind of, it, it sort of is almost in the South, Christianity almost has this sort of air about it where it's like, well, I wouldn't question that. Of course I believe Jesus lived. You know, I may not go to church, but I, I, I don't question that Jesus lived, right? Uh, so there's a lot of that that you may encounter. So there may not be those times where you really get into apologetic arguments and debates over, over coffee with, with people. But you might have some of these questions. But how, how do I know that Christianity is, is the real religion? There's a whole bunch of people out there that are claiming that this is true or that's true. How do I know that what you're telling me is true? And when we take the events that are in Scripture and ground them in reality... There was a real guy named Joseph of Arimathea. He took Jesus down off the cross. And he was a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin. He was a member of the Supreme Court. The people that convicted Jesus in a kangaroo court and put him to death, at risk of his own life, he went and got the body of the dead man Jesus off the cross and buried him in his own tomb. So when we talk about that part of the Christian gospel, it makes it qualitatively different than a lot of other things that are presented to people as true. You following with me? These are real people. Joseph Arimathea is not going to risk his own life to go pull a man off the cross who is not dead, really dead. Right? This book is not going to be recorded by people who say they witnessed his resurrection to the point of death if they aren't sure that he actually died and rose again. So it's important to remember that these things are grounded in reality. So Joseph Arimathea, member of the Supreme Court, of the Jewish Supreme Court, as it were, uh, goes and gets uh, Jesus and buries him in his own tomb. It's sealed. It's witnessed by many people, not just Joseph, um, but several other people, even some members of the Pharisaical community. They bury Jesus and seal him in the tomb, and three days later, he rose from the dead. Okay, here's how the tract uh, frames this. God accepted Jesus' death as payment in full for our sins and raised him from the dead. Jesus defeated death and rose up to be what humanity was always meant to be, the ruler of God's world. All right. Um, so, just to ask a question, why is it that Jesus could rise from the dead? Why could Jesus rise from the dead? Answers. Why? What? Okay, because he's God. So we see in uh, Romans 1, Paul tells us God raised Jesus from the dead. Okay, fair enough. He's God. He's, he rose from the dead. But why? He died and sin was placed on him, right? God's wrath was poured out. Why was it then that he was able to get up from the grave? Why does death no longer, David says, death no longer had dominion over him. Why does death no longer have dominion over him? How did he defeat it? Go ahead. Okay, 
So this is the part where we really got to think about the resurrection and why the resurrection actually takes place. The, remember, death and the grave, as we've already seen in, previous, in the previous panels of this track, is the penalty from a just God for our rebellion against Him. Okay, so, so pause right there for just a second. Jesus dies, even though He committed no sin, Jesus died on the cross because of our sin. But Jesus' resurrection from the dead proves that the penalty of death for sin that He died for had been fully paid. In other words, if I die, you know not only am I human, but I'm also a child of Adam. As such, he dies. He goes the way of everybody else, right? Jesus, on the other hand, had no reason to die. He was perfect. Except that he took your sin and my sin to the cross, and so his death was justified because he had your sin and my sin on him. But once that penalty of sin was paid, what happens now? Well, if the sin is paid for, the grave has no ability or no right to actually restrict his body any longer. You tracking the flow of thought? So look at Acts 2.24. Notice what's what said here. Uh, and I, I want to just think about this logic that Peter gives here in Acts 2.24. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. The logic there is not just that he was God. That also has something to do with it, too. Uh, the grave, it was not possible for the grave to hold him any longer. Because the 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 reason that grave, the grave holds dead bodies is because they rightfully are held there because of sin. So for Jesus, the fact that He paid for sin means that the grave no longer had any dominion over Him, and so uh, there is a resurrection. So, so what does that mean for you and me? What happens to us? Do we die? Okay, so James says, in Jesus we have life through Him. But what does that mean? What does that mean for our bodies? Our physical bodies die? What happens to our soul? So, you die, boom, drop dead. What happens to your body? Goes into a grave or casket and then into a grave. What happens to your soul? To be absent with the body is present with the Lord. Your soul goes to be with the Lord. Okay? Is that the end of the story? What happens next? Well, we don't know how many years later, but what happens, let's say, next in the timeline? The two are reunited. Your body rises from the dead. God, who paid for your sin through the death of His Son, 
will in the end raise your body from the dead as he raised Jesus' body from the dead. Okay, we tracking? This is the Christian, say again, we can't raise ourselves. Right, it is exactly true. So, death and the grave has parameters. It was given a leash. And the leash is, you are permitted to hold down anyone for whom, or anyone who dies because of sin. That's everybody. Including Jesus. But once the check cleared for his death, the grave has no dominion over him. So he, so, yeah. After, exactly, the most important 17 words of the scripture. Um, so, Jesus rises from the dead. Now, I can't emphasize enough. Not only is Jesus buried because the people that saw him on the cross said he's dead. They went to Pontius Pilate and they said, hey, can we have his body to bury him because he's dead? And Pontius Pilate goes, he's dead already? Well, sure, I guess you can have his body. So he sends the, the Roman soldiers out there to look at him. They poke him. He's dead. All right. So they let them have the body. They take his dead body down off the grave, off the cross. They put him in the tomb. They sealed the tomb. Three days later, he gets up from the grave. This right here is what tells you the Christian gospel is true and the other truth claims that are out there, contrary to the Christian gospel, are false. It all has to do with the resurrection of Jesus. If not for the resurrection, I can't defend Jonah. I can't defend Adam and Eve. I can't defend the parting of the Red Sea. I can't defend the multiplication of bread. I can't defend the walking on water. I can't defend anything else in Scripture unless the resurrection is true. You just have to remember that. Anytime you're sitting in front of anybody, you're talking to anybody about the gospel, you're sharing with any of them the truth, the good news of Jesus Christ, any pushback all has to come back to the resurrection. Wait, did Jesus rise from the dead? Unless we settle that, we can't talk about anything else. The parting of the Red Sea just does not matter absolutely at all unless Jesus got it from the dead. And if Jesus got it from the dead, well, now the Red Sea is small potatoes compared to that, right? I can imagine a sea parting if dead people get up from the grave, right? <laughs> to be honest. It's no big deal. Uh, the appointment of a fish to swallow a man for three days, not a big deal, considering somebody got up from the grave alive. So, once I remember that, then we can, now we have a very focused point to talk about. Did Jesus get up from the grave? The great part about Jesus' resurrection is there is more that attests to that miracle than anything else. In history, not just in the scriptures, in history. You have so much reason to believe and have confidence in the resurrection of Jesus that it's just, it's almost embarrassing for other religions. You almost go, I, I'm sorry that you don't have what I have because there's so many witnesses. There's so many witnesses that witnessed it and suffered as a result of their witness, that did not give up their testimony and sought to it that you would have a record of Jesus' resurrection to this day. So, there, it's frequently a thing that, that comes up in the life of, of almost every Christian. There are, some, there are few Christians that I'm, I'm convinced, and I've seen it in Scripture, that have a gift of faith. And they, just, they have this gift where they just never doubt. And I just, I'm not that person. 
I, I don't have that gift. And so frequently I find myself reading and having to be edified and reminded and study of what other people have said about the resurrection of Jesus. So I would just, I would just tell you, if there's any of those points in your life where you just, you're having a hard time, you just go through one of those struggles like we all do, I would recommend many resources that are out there to put your doubts to the test. Don't just put your faith to the test. Put your doubts to the test. And read all of the, the, the reason we have to be able to trust in the resurrection of Jesus. And it, it ends up, you walk away with a lot of confidence in the resurrection. And it's things that you can begin to share with people as you present the gospel. Okay. Um, so Jesus gets up from the grave. Now, many Jews in Jesus' day believed that there would be a resurrection of people, but they believed it would come about at the end, the very end, the end, end, end. Basically what we believe about the resurrection, they, to some extent, they believe that would also happen in the resurrection. Well, God is going to raise us all from the dead, but it's going to happen way, way, way at the end of, of human history. And it would usher in this sort of new age, similar to what we believe, uh, that, would, that would come about. And they get this from several different places. Look at Daniel 12, 1-2. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has charge over, uh, of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as has never been since there was a, a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. That, that sounds like it could be in the end of Revelation. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. I mean, that, that could be taken right out of the book of Revelation. Uh, look at John eleven twenty four. This is right before Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Uh, he says, uh, or Martha says to Jesus, I know that he will rise again, meaning Lazarus, will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So the idea of Jews at that point, is, okay, there will be a resurrection of the dead, but it's going to come at the very, very end of human history. It's the last thing that happens before the new age begins. Well, they were a little bit wrong on that part. What took everyone by surprise was that God, uh, was what God did for Jesus in the middle of history, and what, which most Jews believe would happen at the end of time. So right there in the middle of human history, God raises Jesus from the dead. Now, why do you think he did that? Any idea? You know what? Just hold on to that for just a second. Just think about that for a second. Why do you think he just rose Jesus from the dead right there in the middle of the human history and just sort of upset the apple cart? All their expectations kind of went out the window and they were like, wait, what is happening here, right? So just hold on to that, that thought for just a second. Remember, Jesus' resurrection is not like Lazarus' resurrection. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, but Lazarus, of course, is going to die again, right? Lazarus, he comes back to life. He's not, he's not resurrected in the Jesus sense. He's resurrected in the uh, almost revived CPR kind of sense, but in a miraculous sort of way where he had been dead for four days and Jesus brings him out of the grave is only Jesus could do. No amount of CPR could have revived him. Jesus is the only one that could have done that. And he brings Lazarus back, but Lazarus is going to die again. But when Jesus is resurrected, he's raised to an entirely different order. 
He rose to a new life beyond death, a new dominion of living. He would never die again. Okay. His resurrection is the beginning of a new age. Here's, the Jews didn't have everything wrong. Okay. They, they were thinking, okay, God will ri- raise everyone from the dead on the last day. What they didn't realize is that before that book really begins, there's a prologue. And the prologue to the book of new creation is one person dying for sins, rising from the dead to begin that new age. All right? As of right now, 2,000 years following Jesus' resurrection, we're still in the prologue. Okay? The prologue is not only Jesus rising from the dead and paying for the, sin, paying for the sins of you and me, rising from the dead, purchasing for us eternal life and our eventual resurrection from the dead. But right now in the prologue is the sign-up of everybody that's going to be a part of his kingdom. That's what's going on in the prologue. The book of new creation hasn't even started yet. But we're, we're in the book. We're just not in the first chapter. You tracking with me so far? So that's why we, we, we categorize eternal life as already and not yet. It's already in that we're in the book. You and I are experiencing now, even in the church, where people are saved, we have the Spirit of God dwelling in us, we're experiencing a small sample size of what chapter 1 is going to be like. Now, granted, it's small because we still fight and bicker with each other. Okay? we still got a sinful nature that needs to be done away with. There's still that whole uh, dying and going to the grave part that's got to be done. Okay? Granted. But we have the Spirit of God dwelling in us, which is something before Christ they did not have. We have forgiveness of sin, all of our sin, past, present, and future, wiped away, east from the west. It's gone. We have that. They didn't. There's so many samples of new creation that we right now have because we're in the book of new creation. We're just not out of the prologue yet. All right? Got me? Okay. So, why does he raise Jesus in the middle of human history? To start the book. To start the prologue. That's why. So we get that sort of sample of what life beyond death might look like. So we can now sense, okay, in new creation, not only am I not going to commit murder, I'm not even going to have hatred in my heart towards anybody. Okay? New creation, not only is there not going to be adultery, there's not going to be lust either. Right? And, and we have a kind of sample of that, though we, we haven't fully lived that yet. We can see what that's like. Yeah, James, you have a question? Yes. So he says, uh, James said, when he defeated death, that means the kingdom of heaven is now here. Yes. When Jesus walks among us, he says, repent for. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's, it's right here in front of you. You can sign up and you can enter it. You can be a part of it. So right now, you and me who call ourselves 
Christians, or not who just call ourselves Christians, but who are called Christians by God, uh, who follow Christ, who seek to be His disciples, who want to live in accordance with His statutes, all of us who are repentant and love Christ and are following Him, all of us are part of the kingdom of God. You're in. You're in. Sins are, no stepchildren. Your sins are forgiven. You're, you're sons and daughters of God. Officially, it's, it's, it's been done. There you are. Congratulations. You made it. All right, we're in. Okay. Now we've got to keep going. All right? So it, it's, that's the task. But yes, you're in. Um, because Jesus is fully and truly both God and man, and because of His resurrection from the dead, so He is, he is currently the sole member of fully new creation. He's already in chapter 1 or whatever. Yeah, you want to think of that. I don't, the metaphor breaks down at some point. I'm not sure exactly where it is, but you get the idea. He's already, he's already well into the book. Knows how it's written, okay? Uh, he's the only one. And as the only one, he's the one perfectly suited to judge mankind. Now, as we think of judges, obviously our, in our mind, we get the, you know, the notion of various sinful judges and things like that. But Jesus is also perfectly holy and just and true because He's also fully and truly God. Therefore, He rules with perfect justice. And He is the one through whom judgment will come. So, look at Acts 17.31. This is Paul in the Areopagus. He's presenting to everyone the gospel. And he says this, because he has fixed a day on which, that's, this is God the Father, he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man, that's Jesus, whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So there again, Paul appealing to the atheists, well, they wouldn't call themselves atheists. They would, they would worship all gods, right? These many gods. Um, but, but the point being, he's telling all of them, look, this is the one that God raised from the dead. He's pinning all of his apologetics toward them on the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And he's there to, to share that. Um, and then Jesus even says about himself in John 5.30. Uh, he says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. So He is a just judge. This is how the tract goes on from here. As God's ruler, Jesus has also been appointed as God's judge of the world. When Jesus returns and the judgment day comes, Jesus will be the one calling us to account for our rebellion against God. Remember that rebellion has to be answered. Sin has to be dealt with. And so Jesus has died for the sins of His people, and their sin is atoned for. But there are also people who will go to hell. And that sin has to be accounted for. Jesus is the one that sits as judge of all of it. So the last judgment is one that is definitive and irrevocable. So there's no appeals court at all. This is the supreme, supreme court. 
There is no appeal. And it's the final confirmation of both the grace that was presented to His people in atoning for their sin and judgment of Jesus Christ on his cross, in His cross and resurrection. It is also the working out of the final judgment on the cross where God said, this is sin and this is how it will be punished. Got Revelation 20, verse 11 to 15. Then I saw a great white throne in him who, seat, who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. We also have John eight sixteen. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. So it's final, it's true, there is no appeal. Our only plea then, before the throne of God and before the judgment seat of Christ, is for Christ's sacrificial death to atone for our sins. Justification, then, is the declaration by God that His people are not guilty and are now considered righteous before Him. So when we say one is justified, one believes and is justified, we mean that before the throne of God, the declaration for them is not guilty, as opposed to what we've seen thrown into the lake of fire where the de declaration is guilty. Justification means that you're not guilty. This is how the tract says it. But Jesus is not only God's appointed king and judge. He is also the Savior from judgment. Because of His death in our place, He now offers to forgive all our sins. Remember, being at the resurrected one, He's able to do that. They've already been paid for. We can now make a fresh start with God, no longer as rebels, but as loyal friends giving all thanks and honor to Him. So, what happens now uh, as a result of Jesus dying and giving us new life is those who are in Christ, the Bible tells us, have been raised with Him. So, the, the, remember, if we kind of carry that metaphor out, the prologue has begun. The, new, the book of new creation has already started. We're in the prologue now. And so what that means is the expectation for those who, can, who are considered members of the body of Christ, or disciples of Jesus, the outlook for their life is as ones who have already been raised with Christ. So if you're in the prologue, has the end of the book already been written? Yeah! you got the book in your hand. It's right there. The end of the book has already been written and set in stone. There's no changing it. It's right there. It's written on the pages. 
And the pages say, this is what new life for you is like. So when the Bible presents a Christian, it's not just as one who is potentially got some prospects waiting for them. We'll see. It's ones who have been raised with Christ already. So that means that what follows is that our focus, what the New Testament is doing is saying, okay, your focus should no longer really be on this life because the world that you're living in is passing away and it will soon be gone. But that's no worry for Christians, we reason. Believers, for believers, the end of this life means living with Jesus in glory. And so this certainty that we believe, that we have faith and trust in, that is going to happen for us because the end is already written, that certainty frees the Christian to live for God and for eternity. So it has a way of taking our minds, in a good way, off of the things of the earth. There was a phrase that went around for a long time. Uh, that, and you've probably heard it, you may have even said it before, to be, heaven, to be heavenly minded is to be no earthly good. Have you heard this before? Hogwash. Absolute rubbish. The only way to be earthly good is to be heavenly minded. If you don't have your mind on eternity, why would you do anything else? The Bible and everyone else in history that's not a Christian reasons, if there is no resurrection from the dead, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. If your mind is not on eternity, then who cares about any of this? Yeah, you only live once. YOLO. Do whatever you want, right? Live your life to the fullest. You don't want to miss out on anything. Hedonism is the natural outcome, the logical outcome from there being no life after death. You might as well get all you can out of the life you have because it's, it's all you ever get. But that's not what is true, actually, in Scripture. And Scripture is telling us we must take our minds to heaven. We must focus on what we have there. And it, even the first sermon series I preached when I was here was through the book of Colossians. And it was the sermon series was titled Heavenly Minded. And it was challenging that very notion of being so earthly minded that you'd be, or so heavenly minded that you'd be no earthly good. I would say it's the exact opposite. If you're earthly minded, you're no heavenly good. Colossians 3, 1 to 4. If then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. That's what he's telling you. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. So you hear that people, the people say, well, you be so heavenly minded, you know earthly good. You haven't read the Bible. You haven't read Colossians. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So what then does the track go to uh, conclude with? Yeah, at least panel five. In this new life that Jesus offers, God Himself comes to live with us within us by His Spirit. We can experience the joy of a new relationship with God. And when Jesus does return in all His glory, we can be totally confident that we will be acceptable to Him, not because we deserve to be, but because He took our punishment by dying in our place. And the very one that died 
and rose again also stands as our judge. He's also our defender. So he's not only the offended party. He's not only the judge. He's also the defense attorney. Hey, the trifecta. Look at that. That's, that's a great place for us to be, is standing next to the defense attorney who's also the judge and the offended party. Right? He has every reason to defend us. So the security of the believer cannot lie in his or her obedience or law-keeping or even faith since our fallen nature has demonstrated an inability to do so. All right. That's a, that's a lengthy sentence, and it's complex. So fill in the blanks. Let's think about it for just a second. The security of the believer does not lie in his or her obedience, your ability to obey God. That's not where your, secure, your eternal security can lie. Because how often do you disobey God? You couldn't do it. It doesn't lie in your law-keeping. Because we've proven over the Old Testament is proof, positive, if not your own life, that you can't keep the law. Or even faith. I want to believe hard enough. Well, guess what your faith is plagued by? Doubt. You can't even believe hard enough that God would grant you eternal life. Our fallen nature has proven to us, our flesh has proven to us, we don't have the ability to do anything perfectly enough that would merit our salvation. Therefore, my security cannot lie in my ability to keep any of these things. Instead, in the gospel, the obedience that God requires is supplied first by Christ. He obeyed enough for all of us. And He atoned for my sin first. Second, the obedience that I now accomplish. Because, hey, listen, just as much as I might preach on Sunday, a couple Sundays ago, your sins are all atoned for, past, present, and future, that's 100% true. But I might turn around two weeks later and preach steadfast obedience. You must obey. That's also 100% true. It's just that your obedience doesn't purchase for you salvation, nor does it purchase your atonement. That's already been done. Your obedience, how is it accomplished? How is it that my, I can actually obey and, and keep the law? How is it that I can do that? He has given me His Spirit to live within me. And His Spirit produces the obedience. It's all His it's a byproduct, a fruit of the Spirit that He put within me. So now not only does He atone for my sin, because there's no way that I could keep any of this of my own nature, but then He also gave me a new and competing nature with my flesh to actually produce the obedience that He desires out of me. And now, I, because of His Spirit, I actually want to do that. There's at least a side of me that wants to do that. So, when we look at the Scriptures, places like Galatians 2.20, say exactly this. This would be a good one to memorize. If you're looking for, to memorize Scripture, this would be a good one to, to start with. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. 
And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What does Paul mean that he says, it's no longer I that live, but Christ that lives within me? The Spirit that God has put within me, that's the one living for Christ. It's, he, Paul's recognizing, that is not me. I remember me before Jesus. I didn't like me before Jesus. So what is it that's causing this obedience and this love and this peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control that is not perfect in me but is growing? What is causing that? Because that wasn't there before then. I was a murderous, hateful bigot before Jesus. So what is it that's causing this? That's not me, Paul says. I recognize it's no longer I that live, but Christ that lives within me. What's that? There's someone else now on the throne, not, not Paul, in other words. Look at Romans 8, 9-11. We can go through a lot of these, but, uh, and I'm just going to pick and choose my favorites. All right. You, however, he says, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin... The Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit who dwells in you. So then what does that Spirit that dwells in me, dwell in me produce? Look at Galatians 5.22. It's about a third of the way down. 5.22 and 23. You probably have it memorized. This would be another good one to memorize. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Well, do I have any evidence for this happening in the Old Testament? Yes, this is the promise of the new covenant that came in the book of Ezekiel and some, several other prophets. Look at Ezekiel, the one just below that, Ezekiel 36, 26-27. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. What is causing the obedience? It's this new heart, this spirit that he has put within us to do that. Our faith, our obedience, our law keeping, it's all a product of the spirit that dwells within us. Okay, uh, finally, the assurance that the believer has of being able to to withstand God's judgment is that because of Christ's atoning work, and I would add to that His resurrection, their names are written, here's the kicker, before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb that was slain. Look at this, Revelation. Let's just walk through the times that this occurs in Revelation. Revelation 3, 5. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. So there you have it. Revelation 3, verse 5. So long as you conquer, I'm waiting to see whether or not you conquer in this life, and then I will put your name in the book of life. Right? Is that what it says? Well, if you go to Revelation 13, 8, and all who dwell on the earth will worship it, that is the beast, 
Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. So who are the ones that are not going to bow down and worship the beast? The one whose names have been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the Lamb who was slain. Why are they not going to bow down and worship the beast? Why do you think? Why is the whole world going to bow down and worship the beast? But this group of people whose names were written down before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain, who then, in time, eyes, their eyes were opened by the Lord to see Christ and believe in the gospel and profess faith in Him and repent and obey and all of those things. Why are they the ones that are not going to bow down and worship the beast? Ah, there's an ingredient that they have that the others don't. It's the Spirit of God that He's put within them. He's removed the heart of stone. He's put in a heart of flesh. And He's assured them that they're not going to be the ones that bow down and worship the beast or its image. Okay, but then keep going. It says, the beast that you saw was, was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go into destruction. And the dwellers on the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life of the, from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. Then 12, 20 verse 12, And I saw dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books. That's not good news, according to what they had done. Uh, but for the people whose names were written in the book of life, it is good news. Because, hey, your, your names are recorded in this other book too, but cross-references, book of life, there's your name. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Verse 21, or chapter 21, verse 27. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Paul mentions this in Philippians 4. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Their names were written before the foundation of the world. So then we get to these complex, really challenging passages in Scripture that we twist our mind over all the time and we fight tooth and nail about, even though we shouldn't. Ephesians 1, 4 and 5. He chose us before the foundation of the world. So much so that He wrote our names in a book before the world was ever formed. That we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. So how does Luke describe in the book of Acts when these people hear the gospel preached to them and they respond in repentance? He says in Acts 13, 48, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. What does it say? And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. 
How did they come to faith in Jesus? And all these others around them, they heard the same gospel, and they said, no thank you, and they walked away. How is it that these people, these Gentiles, heard this gospel and rejoiced when so many turned away and rejected it? As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Who appointed them? Probably the same one that wrote their name in a book before the foundation of the earth. Who looked on them through the blood of Christ and said, though they have sinned, their sin is atoned for and it's thrown as far as the east is from the west. You cannot have the atoning work of Christ accomplish its full and final satisfaction of God's wrath for you if you don't have a sovereign God electing His saints. You can't have it. Your salvation is determined then by you. You can choose it, and then you can unchoose it. Frankly, that's not how salvation works. That's not how atonement works. That's not how any of this works. That's not how God's freedom actually works. God is the one that chooses, frankly. Here's the reason why that's helpful for you to know when you're presenting the gospel to someone. Because I don't know about you, I tend to think of myself, and I struggle with this sometimes, as being either good enough or not good enough. And as a preacher, you deal with it every Sunday. You get up there and you talk for however long, too long probably, and you get down from there and you go, that was terrible. Or, hey, hey, that was pretty good. You know, whatever you're thinking, it's going through your head. And visitors come and go, or people come and go, and you think, oh, what can I do? And the same thing happens when you're on the street or in the grocery store, wherever you are, you're sitting down with a tract and you're like, I don't have enough answers. I don't have enough knowledge. My presentation isn't clear enough. I don't have a good enough way of presenting it. If only I was better at being able to do this or that, then maybe they would believe. But when it comes down to it, you have to understand that it's God working through His Spirit that opens the eyes of people to believe in the Gospel or not. So you be faithful. You just give them whatever you have. That's why I say, look, if all you can muster is an invitation to church, and sure, we want better next time, maybe one day you can actually get the atonement out or something, right, in the Gospel, because inviting them to church, believe it or not, is not presenting the Gospel, but it's better than not inviting them to church, isn't it? Of course it is. So of course we want better than that, sure. But even if that's all you can do, just be faithful. We're, nobody here, I, I, you get, we get into this sometimes as, as Christians. It's like, share the gospel and we got a little notches you know, on our tract, in our Christian belt or whatever. It says, shared the gospel with this many people this week. And we're not getting into that. This is not about competition or about 
measuring somebody's faithfulness based on how well or how poorly they, they shared the gospel. That, that's not this. What, what I hope to do on Wednesday, on Sunday, at feast, anytime we're preaching or teaching or singing, all I want to do is put the Scriptures in front of you, put the atoning work of Christ in front of you, truly and faithfully, and I want to stoke the fires of joy. If we can do that, and we can just stoke the fires of joy, which I am convinced is only done through His Word, preaching it, praying it, singing it. If we can stoke the fires of joy, evangelism happens as a result of that. Evangelism is sparks that fly off the logs. Okay? That's what it is. So when you go out there and you see a friend and you're like, man, this guy's lost as a goose in a snowstorm. And you just came from a place where we're talking about this. And you're really excited about it. What are you going to do? What are you going to share with them? That's what evangelism is. It's a byproduct of worship. And it's an invitation to worship. I'm excited about the God that I worship, and I want to tell you about Him, so that you will come and be this excited too. I want you to have joy. That's what evangelism is. That's what I want. So it's not about comparing. And so when you sit down at a coffee table or wherever you are, you've you got to realize it's not about my polished presentation. I just want to be faithful. I just want to explain to them the joy that I've got in Christ. And so of all the claims that Scripture makes, I think here's another thing that you can just, you sort of need to take away from this and really think about. Of all the claims that Scripture makes, Jesus' resurrection is the most important one for confidence in the gospel. So maybe there's, maybe there's a, a point where you're like, I want to share with somebody, but when I find myself talking about things like the resurrection of the dead or when I talk about Jesus' return, I feel kind of hokey and I feel like, I don't know, I'm just not super confident in it and how I'm presenting it or what I'm even thinking through. And it, do I believe this and all those kinds of things? The time that you can spend outside of here reading about Jesus' resurrection from the dead or the claims of, the, of Scripture and the veracity of Scripture, the truth of Scripture, the time that you can spend investigating those kinds of things is time well spent. It will help you. And there are resources that are not super academic. If you're concerned about that, you're like, well, I don't like things that are really heady and things like that. Some of you do, and that's great too. There's several things that you might, several resources that you might think of. Josh McDowell is very, he, he's very relatable. He's very easy to read. Uh, he takes big concepts, puts them down into just, you know, kind of quick read type, type situations. Uh, evidence that demands a verdict is a, is a really good uh, resource for that. It's just, it's very, I think, very accessible. Um, one that might be a little bit more challenging than that, still accessible, but, but a little more challenging, is stuff written by William Lane Craig, Reasonable Faith, might be one of those. Um, there's one that I have not read uh, on here uh, by Neil Shinby called Why Believe. Um, I've read the description and kind of looked at some of the table of contents and read about him and things like that. He seems to be a pretty sharp, sharp cookie. And it might be even a little bit more right up there with William Lane Craig. But it might be also a good resource. There's, there's a hundred of them out there, all right? Um, you know, McDowell's, several other people, there, there's plenty that write books that you can access, that you can get confidence. Um, Tim Keller's Reason for God, uh, there's many, many of them that are out there that, 
that give you, can, can bolster confidence in what you're presenting, if that's what you lack. And so I would say any time you spend there is, is time well spent. All right, questions? All right, let's pray. We'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for the, the truth of the text of Scripture. And, and we're grateful for what you've delivered to us and that we can confidently believe it, trust it, teach it, share it with others. And, and that their faith, their acceptance or their rejection of the gospel, the good news that we share, is not contingent on us. It doesn't change the fact that the news happened. But it is an invitation. So we pray for fruit. We do. We, we want to see people come to faith. I, I'm reminded of some we baptized not that long ago who are relatively new to the faith and came to faith as the result of one of our members inviting them to church. That is you doing that. That's not us. We're grateful for it. And we pray that you would cause it to continue. In us, create a joy that is not able to be extinguished, that we might be able to share with others the truth of the good news of the message of Jesus' resurrection and death, that they might actually have freedom and life and joy and peace. All those things that we have in Christ, we can share with others, and we're grateful for an opportunity to do it. It's, it's an honor and a privilege to be able to represent you to the nations. So uh, allow us the boldness to do that and give us the fruit to encourage us to continue to do it more. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you live in the Tuscaloosa area and are looking for a church, we'd love for you to visit. Our service times are Sunday mornings at 1030 and Wednesday nights at 615.